Unless otherwise indicated, Ratchet Book Club is intended for a mature audience. Viewer discretion is greatly advised. Welcome to Ratchet Book Club, where we read hood classics and good classics. I'm Derek. 916-633-1537, Ratchet and Ratchet at gmail.com, Ratchet Book Club on Twitter, Ratchet Book Club on Facebook. Chapter 7. Tuesday afternoon, David visited one of his father's lesser-known properties, a log cabin located in the forested hills on the edge of town. Irvin Williams, his dad's real estate attorney, had told him about the place. Your father used to go there when he wanted complete privacy, Irvin has said, then added with a smile. By the way, it now belongs to you, too. He hoped he would learn more about his father by visiting the cabin. Since Sunday's revelations, he had not discovered anything noteworthy. His father kept thousands of books, hundreds of photos, and boxes full of papers dispersed throughout the house in no discernible order. It would take time and energy to dig through everything and piece together the puzzle of Richard Hunter's life. He followed the directions the lawyer had given him to reach the hideaway. He drove on a quiet, tree-shaded road, away from the residential areas. Ahead, the route hit a dead end, but there was a driveway on the right, between a row of shrubs. He turned onto the winding lane and into the forest. King perched on the pasture seat looking curiously at the dense woods. You won't ever roam out there, pal, David said, stroking the dog's neck. You'd never find your way home. The dog chuffed, as if he disagreed. The cabin stood in the clearing, perhaps a quarter of a mile down the road. King, always eager to explore new places, beat him to the door. Inside, the air was warm and stale. It was a spacious, one-room house with a high ceiling. A kitchenette occupied one side, a bedroom area the other, and the living space was in front. The bathroom was barely larger than a closet. A desk stood along the far wall. It had a lamp, a jar of pencils, and an old typewriter. As King snipped his way through the cabin, David looked around too. After 15 minutes of searching and finding nothing whatsoever of interest, he was ready to leave. His cell phone chirped. It was his mother. How are things in Mississippi? Mom asked. I haven't heard from you lately, boy. You moved there and forgotten about me. Hey, Mom. I've been fine. Still getting settled, mainly. Although he normally shared almost everything with his mother, he decided to keep quiet about his investigation. Mom didn't want him there to begin with. And the last thing he wanted to do was upset her with the few discoveries and theories he had learned so far. She would only insist on him coming back to Atlanta. 
Instead, he told her about Naya. He gushed about Naya, actually. He hadn't told anyone in his family about her yet, and the praises flooded out of him. Mom, of course, was glad to hear about her. David knew that she privately nursed the wish that he will settle down soon and start a family. You'll be 30 next year, she had begun saying lately. I don't want you to rush into anything, but you want to have your own kids while you're still young enough to enjoy them. You don't want to be a 60-year-old man out there getting winded trying to play ball with your teenage son. Whenever David countered by telling her that meeting the right woman was hardly a simple task, she accused him of being a workaholic who didn't socialize enough. He could never win. Well, it's so nice to hear that you finally met a nice young lady, Mom said, and he could hear the smile in her voice. Treat that girl right. A good woman's hard to find. You know I'll treat her right, Mom. I had a good teacher in you, didn't I? You sure did, Mom laughed. I love you. I love you too. Bye. Hands on his waist, David looked around the cabin one last time. He hadn't found anything useful, but at least he could come there if he wants some privacy. In fact, it might make a nice weekend getaway with Naya, he thought with a smile. Outside, he found a gigantic black bird sitting atop the Pathfinder's hood. It looked like a crow, though an unusually large one. Shoo, birdie, he said. He waved his hand. The bird did not move. It stared at him with beady, ink-black eyes. It looked directly at him without faltering. It was not a crow, he realized. It was much too big for that. It was a raven. Hey, fly away now, he said. Behind David, King growled deep in his throat. The raven ignored the dog. Still watching David, it ruffled its wings. David took a step backwards. Crazily, memories of that Alfred Hitchcock flick, The Birds, came to mind. The bird cawed. It launched itself into the air, swooping right above David. He felt a wave of cool wind as it flapped its broad wings. The creature soared away into the blue sky. David frowned. Weird. He had never seen a bird behave so boldly. King watched the raven vanish into the sky and then looked at David. David shrugged. Nope, pal. I don't know what that was all about either. Wednesday night, David slept fitfully. He was plagued by a nightmare of his father. In the dream... He stood over his father's grave, paying his respects. The ground began to tremble and heave, like the deck of a boat caught in a sea storm. Then the grave burst open, spewing raw earth in pungent clumps, and his father climbed out of the ragged hole. He wore a dark suit and did not appear to have decomposed at all. He looked robust and healthy. He sprang to his feet and seized David by his shirt and said, Death is invigorating, son. You should try it sometime. David jumped awake with a scream trapped in his throat. Only a dream, David muttered. He was panting. It's over. Silent darkness draped the master bedroom. The digital clock on the nightstand read 3.06. He had climbed in bed only three hours ago after talking on the phone with Naya. They were going to see each other again on Friday. He had invited her to dinner at his house. He wished she was with him tonight. He was too shaken up to immediately go back to sleep. 
He swung his legs over the side of the bed, and his feet brushed across King's flank. The dog snored softly. King was a deep sleeper. A lot of good you are, mutt, David said. Someone could have been choking me and you'd be snoring. He stepped around the canine, grabbed his house robe from the hook on the door, and shuffled out of the bedroom. He decided to surf the web until he became too exhausted to keep his eyes open. But first, he went downstairs to the kitchen to get a drink. His mouth was as dry as if he had been chewing cotton balls. Standing beside the counter, he gulped an entire bottle of cold water. Better. He was walking across the hallway, back toward the staircase, when he heard a creaking sound coming from the living room just ahead. He thought of dismissing it as one of those ordinary settling noises that old houses tended to make. But this noise did not fade away. It continued, rhythmically. It sounded like someone was sitting in the rocking chair. Cool sweat beaded on the nape of his neck. The darkness in the hallway, relieved only by the dim range light in the kitchen at the end of the hall, pressed in on him like thick walls. He sucked in a deep breath. Although he didn't want to go near the living room, he had to look. He had to pass by the room to reach the staircase anyway. But most important, he had to see who was in the rocking chair. What if it was his father? In the blackness of night, the thought did not seem far-fetched at all. Lifting his feet to walk required a Herculean effort. It was as though he wore lead weights strapped to each foot. He trudged to the living room doorway. He looked inside. Moonbeams coming through a window cast a pale glow across the room. And in that milky luminescence, David saw a man sitting in the rocking chair. An older man. The man wore a crisp white shirt, bow tie, suspenders, and dark slacks. Wire-rimmed glasses gleamed on his face, and David made out a pipe nestled between the man's lips. It looked exactly like his grandfather, John Hunter, or Big Daddy as everyone called him. But Big Daddy had been dead for 20 years. Big Daddy rocked, rocked, and rocked in the chair. He faced David. David felt the weight of his dead grandfather's gaze on him, like a slight pressure on his forehead. The apparition removed the pipe from his lips and spoke, the mellow voice unmistakably clear. The time is coming, son. What? David broke his paralysis and stepped into the room. Fear had been replaced by intense curiosity. What do you mean, Granddad? You got to fulfill your legacy to the family. The Hunter's legacy. I... I don't understand, David said. What responsibility? Stay strong, son. Stay strong. The apparition began to fade. Wait! David rushed forward. Don't go! Big Daddy vanished. David's hands grasped empty air. With a cry of frustration, he collapsed into the chair. He pounded the armrest with his fist. Big Daddy had been telling him something important, something absolutely critical, and he could not figure out what he meant. The time was coming for him to fulfill his responsibility to his family, the hunter's legacy. None of it meant anything to him, but it meant everything to his father. He had no doubt that he had seen a genuine ghost. 
A few days ago, when Nia had related her own story of spirits she had seen at the Mason place, he had been skeptical. Not anymore. Indeed, the rocking chair itself was cold. Touching the wood sent a chill through his fingers. David believed, fully. There was nothing like seeing a specter with your own eyes and feeling the remnants of his presence with your own hands to erase every figment of disbelief. A floorboard creaked in the hallway. David's head snapped up. King's familiar canine figure regarded him from the doorway. The dog chuffed, tentatively. Come here, boy, David said. The dog trotted inside and pressed against him. David stroked King's furry neck, and the dog licked his fingers. Ordinarily, David hated for King to lick his hands, but he didn't rebuke the dog this time. King's presence reassured him. David looked out the window, at the crescent moon in the deep night sky. Something major was about to happen in his life. Only a fool would choose to ignore the obvious signs. But what was going to happen? And what was he supposed to do about it? He would have to discover answers. Soon. He had a feeling that his life depended on it. Thursday, Nia was on the floor of her bedroom, working through her last set of abdominal crunches, when the telephone rang. She squeezed out another rep, then hopped to her feet and answered the phone. Hello? She said, breathing hard, trying to catch her breath. Flat silence came from the earpiece. Hello? She said again. More silence. And then, husky breathing, like a man who was sexually aroused. A blade of ice lanced Nia's spine. The beguiling, handsome face of Colin Morgan, the teacher who had stalked her in Houston, flashed like a red siren in her mind. She didn't know for sure whether he had called. The caller ID display said, unavailable. But her bone-deep intuition told her that he was a culprit. Had he been paroled from prison already? If so, how had he gotten her phone number? Who is this? She said one final time. The caller responded with heavy breathing. Nia slammed down the phone. She stared at the telephone, as though willing it not to ring again. But it rang. Again, the caller ID stated, unavailable. She picked it up. Hello? quick, excited panting, like a hungry wolf on the prowl. She smashed the handset into the cradle with enough force to rock the table. Hugging herself to ward off the numbing chill that had seeped into her body, she glared at the phone. It did not ring again. But her relief was short-lived. What if the caller really had been Morgan? What if he had been released from jail? What if he was coming to get her? Don't get carried away, she cautioned herself. She ordered herself to put it out of mind. The caller was surely some harmless loser with nothing better to do than randomly dial numbers and hope that a woman answered. It wasn't worth worrying about. She should relax. But she suddenly had so much nervous energy that she worked through an extra 200 reps of crunches. David spent Friday at home, determined to learn more about his family. His encounter with the ghosts and the growing mystery of his father's death convinced him that vital clues lay within the house. The challenge was to sort through everything, separate the items that seemed important, and figure out how they fit into the overall puzzle. Nevertheless, 
He felt that he was slowly being drawn into something that went deeper than anything he had seen so far. He had only traced the surface. Intuition told him that more awaited him. He only had to be patient and alert. While he was in the living room, flipping through a magazine spread across the coffee table, the doorbell rang. It was Franklin Bennett. David had spoken with Franklin a couple of times in passing since they had met last week, but he hadn't gotten the opportunity to sit down and have a prolonged discussion with the man. You look quite busy, Franklin said. I'm sorry to have disturbed you. I can chat for a few, David said. Want to have a seat on the porch? I can bring some ice water or a soda. Which would you like? Water would be fine, thank you. Franklin settled into a lawn chair. David was glad that Franklin had visited. Perhaps a retired professor could share some insights that would help him figure out some things about his family. David got tall glasses of ice water for both of them. When he came back to the veranda, he found King pressed against Franklin's legs, demanding attention. Franklin stroked the dog's back, but King was eager for more. Chill out, King, David said. Let Mr. Bennett relax, will you? King appeared to stick his tongue out at David. Franklin chuckled. Sorry, the mutt has no manners, David said. He sat next to Franklin and put the water on the table between them. How are you adjusting to life in our fine town, Franklin said. To be honest, I like it, David said. It's a lot slower than Atlanta, but I like the change of pace. The people I've met have been nice, too. I'm pleased to hear that, David. Your father was private, but highly esteemed. In a town like Dark Corner, your family's reputation precedes you. No kidding. Dad knew everyone. How is the Richard Hunter exploration going, if you don't mind me asking? Franklin casually took a sip of water, but his eyes were keen. David rubbed his hands together. So far, I have more questions than answers, but I've just gotten started. I'm not giving up any time soon, not until I'm satisfied. Franklin frowned. Can I be frank for a moment, David? Sure. I mean, if that's what you want to use as your nickname, like if you're tired of me calling you Franklin, dog, I got you. I got you, bro. If you say, can I be frank for a moment, I'm going to call you Frank for like the next 30 minutes. And then I'm going to go back to Franklin. Just say you want to be called your nickname, dog. Just be honest with me. Sorry. <clears throat> you seem to be a stable, successful young man. You built a business on your own. You're well-spoken and intelligent. I'm certain that your family is very proud of you. However, I sense that you aren't completely happy with the life that you built for yourself. I don't know. Maybe, David said. He looked into the depths of his glass. I feel kind of incomplete. Like there's this emptiness in me that I have to fill. Because you grew up without your father? David nodded. Maybe, yeah. I tried not to think about it too much when I was a kid. But you know, the older I got, I really started paying attention to some of my buddies who were close to their dads, and they had something special. Don't get me wrong. I love my mother, and she raised me well, gave me just about everything I could ask for. Still, something was missing. That father-son connection. It's important, Franklin agreed. I'm close to my son, and I was close to my father as well. Both relationships have deeply enriched my life. You know what I mean then, David said. For example, 
a few days before I moved here, I went to the barber shop. I was sitting in a chair, getting my hair trimmed, and in walks this guy and his son. The kid's maybe five years old. You see this all the time at the barber shop, a father and son going together. But that day, it hit me. My father had never taken me to get a haircut. My mother always took me. I almost broke down and cried, right there in the chair. It was a small thing, but I missed it. All that father-son stuff, I never had it. And I guess I never will now. But it eats at me. I feel like half a man or something. Half a man? Come now, you shouldn't feel that way, David. Don't be so hard on yourself. You did the best you can given your circumstances. You've been blessed. I know. You're right, David said. I tell myself the same thing all the time. But it doesn't change how I feel. Almost savagely, David tipped the glass and downed most of the water in a few gulps. The rush of icing is punishing his throat. Then he sat the glass back on the table so loudly the king jumped. Let's change the subject, David said. Of course, Franklin said. I shouldn't have pried. I apologize. No, it's no problem, David said. His hands were clammy. He blotted his palms on his shorts. But I have a question for you. I'm hoping you can help me out since you have a background in history. Proceed. Okay. If I want to learn more about my family's history, what should I look for? Franklin's eyes brightened. I'm pleased that you've asked. I suggest beginning with photographs. Find as many as you can, gather them together, and review them to piece together the family story. Okay. Pictures. Got it. But that's only a start. Every family has heirlooms and items that have been passed down from one generation to the next. Jewelry, artwork, antiques, journals, letters, legal documents, and books. Yes, including Bibles. Bibles? Indeed, Franklin said. Bibles are sometimes used to record information about the family. They may include genealogical data, and in some cases, accounts of which relative married, died, did this or that, and when. You know, that sort of thing. Okay, you're right. I think I've heard of that before. Researching your family history can be enlightening, but it can also be a challenge, David. The oral tradition runs quite strong in the African-American community. The best way to learn about your family is to sit at the feet of an elder and absorb his stories. Unfortunately, you don't have that luxury. Yeah, David said. There were my grandparents on my father's side, but my grandmother died before I was born, and my granddad, well, only saw him twice, and the last time was over 20 years ago. David didn't mention that he had seen his granddad's ghost. Franklin would think he was crazy. And Richard did not have any siblings, Franklin said. He's always had a small family, David said. I don't have a lot of resources to draw him for this stuff. You'll do fine, Franklin said. He patted David's hand. Please don't hesitate to ask for my assistance at any time. The study of history is my passion. I'll remember that, David said. Thanks. We'll have to make good on our plans for dinner sometime soon. My wife is concerned that you're getting by on sardines and crackers. David laughed. Definitely. Let's do dinner soon. 
How about tomorrow evening? That works for me. Can I bring a guest? Ha, the beautiful young lady, Miss James. Franklin winked. Word travels quickly in a small town, son. Of course she's welcome to come. David blushed. I've got to get used to this place. See you tomorrow then, Franklin said. As David watched Franklin return to his home, he thought about the professor's suggestions. Photographs, jewelry, artwork, antiques, journals, letters, books, legal documents, Bibles. He put his hands on his waist, looking around the living room. It was full of stuff, just like all the rooms in the house. He had no idea where to begin his search. Start at the top then, he thought. In the second floor hallway, a small panel in the ceiling granted access to the attic. Standing on the stepladder that he found in the garage, King lying on the carpet and watching him curiously, David slid away the panel. Dust plumed out of the opening. He coughed. The dog sneezed. After the dust had dissipated, he climbed into the attic. He switched on the flashlight, panned it around. Cardboard boxes were scattered across the floor. Heaps of clothes. Stacks of moldering books. Obviously, no one had been up there in years. But he started looking. Ten minutes later, he made his first noteworthy discovery in a sagging box packed with old science fiction paperbacks. A large, leather-bound Bible. At the kitchen table, David examined the Bible. It was old. There was no doubt about that. The red leather was worn. The gold letters on the cover were faded. And the pages were stiff and yellow. He handled the book carefully, afraid it would crumble into dust. He wasn't sure what he was looking for. A sheaf of photos stuffed between the Old and New Testaments? Notes scribbled in the margins? He opened the book. He found an ink sketch on the inside front cover. A family tree? Actually, it wasn't much of a tree. It was a line drawn in the center of the page. Rectangular boxes were placed at various points along the line, and names were written inside each box. David recognized the names from the snatches of conversation that he remembered from years ago. At the top of the line, William Hunter was scribbled, then Robert Hunter, followed by James Hunter, then John Hunter, followed by Richard Hunter. The box at the bottom read, David Hunter. An electric current seemed to snap through David's body. Who had written his name in this book, and when? Had his father done it? He rubbed his chin, continuing to stare at the bloodline. That was the only thing he could think to call it. There was only one child born in each generation, he noted. The child was always a male. It was weird, especially considering that in the old days of the South, families tended to be large, so the children could help out in the cotton fields. He couldn't make sense of it. He began to turn more pages. Various passages throughout the scriptures had been underlined. He read a few more verses. They meant nothing to him that he might apply to his family. He continued to search. It was an illustrated Bible, evidently. Interspersed between books, he found skillfully drawn black and white sketches. He assumed they were depictions of biblical stories. Interesting. Leaving the book open, 
He poured a glass of apple juice. King padded up to him and dramatically lowered his snout to indicate the empty water bowl sitting on the floor. David laughed and gave the dog some fresh water. Sipping juice, David leaned against the counter, letting his mind chew over what he had seen. His gaze happened upon an oil painting done by James Hunter, his great-grandfather. The piece hung on the opposite wall, beside the doorway. It colorfully portrayed black sharecroppers picking cotton under the glare of a red sun. David frowned. He'd never paid much attention to the painting before, but now he stepped closer to it. His great-granddad's distinctive looping signature was scrawled in the bottom right-hand corner of the canvas. Oh, shit, David said. The glass of juice dropped out of his fingers and crashed against the floor. King, lapping water from the bowl, yelped in alarm. David rushed past the shattered glass and hunched over the Bible. He flipped to an illustration. It was a sketch of a broad-shouldered black man dressed in overalls, leaving a hovel that resembled slave quarters on a plantation. The man gripped a long knife. Behind him, a woman took refuge inside the shack. The name James Hunter was scribbled in the lower right-hand corner of the drawing. Hands trembling, David turned to another sketch. The male character from the previous drawing stood at the head of a crew of similarly dressed men, leading a charge against a mob of people who were swathed in shadows. James Hunter had created this sketch as well. Years of Sunday school have familiarized David with the Bible. These were not scenes from any biblical tales that he had ever read. In another sketch, the same male figure, along with two other black men and two white men, approached what looked like an Indian encampment. The men were bedraggled and empty-handed, as if seeking help. Yet another drawing showed the broad-shouldered character leading a posse of men towards a cave that were guarded by a slavering pack of huge dogs. The seven-member team, an assortment of blacks, whites, and Indians, were armed with rifles, handguns, and bow and arrows. If these illustrations had nothing to do with biblical texts, then what did they represent? And why had his great-grandfather created them? The telephone rang. Annoyed at being interrupted as he teetered on the edge of a breakthrough, David snatched the telephone handset off the wall. Hello, he said. A soft, feminine voice said in a whisper, David Hunter, you are. God help him, it sounded like another ghost. He stood as rigid as a rod. Who is this? You are responsible, the woman said in her unearthly voice. You must prepare. Responsible for what? Prepare for what? It is being revealed to you. You must believe and be strong. Who are you? The phone clicked. The caller had hung up. Damn it, David said. He had neither caller ID nor star 69 included on the phone service. His father had no use for such modern technology. For the uninitiated... Star 69 was a thing that we used to have. Caller IDs used to not be on your phone, by the way. It used to be this box that sat next to your phone, and you could scroll through the names and numbers and everything. It was a small little thing, like about the size of maybe a, a garage door opener. But, you know, if you didn't see it... And Star 69 was literally, if you missed a call, sometimes 
you could pick up your phone and press the star button and then 69 and it would call the person back who had just called you. It was horrible. Stalkers used it a lot. People would uh, call you back when you were cussing them out and you'd be like, I didn't know you had that. And then they cuss you out for a while and they hang up and then you start 69 them and then you get you became friends became because it became a game of phone tag. And then your mama came downstairs and was like, you know, star 69 costs money every time you use it. Right. And you're like, no, I didn't know that. But now that you told me. My bad. And then you get grounded so you could only have that talk with them at church. Because it turned out that they went to church with you. And y'all turned into like church boyfriend and girlfriend. So then you start kissing after church. Because that's the only time you got to see them was Sunday school and at church. And so you start to kiss them after church. Like in between the pews. And you start to feel really weird about having a church girlfriend. And you start to wonder if maybe it's a devil trying to uh, take you away from the arms of the Lord. Um, but, you know, this is your first girlfriend and you're kissing the pews of the church. So there's nothing wrong with that until the pastor sees you. And that's when you find out that not only is your church girlfriend only available to you on Sundays because she doesn't come to choir rehearsal like every other black child in the entire city. She's also the pastor's niece. And why didn't she tell you that? Well, she probably did. And you probably would have saw her walking out with him every service. But you didn't really pay attention until she started giving you Google eyes. Then all of a sudden you were interested, but not in her life story, just in her lips. So then the past wants to talk to your mom. And so now not only are you in trouble for the star 69, but you've been star 69 in the pastor's niece. And you've also been kissing the pastor's niece in the pews of the church, which should be in the Bible as a sin. But because it's not, you got a loophole. Was it a call from the beyond or was there a more ordinary source? He remembered the psychic who lived on the outskirts of town, whom his father had visited, Pearl. Naya, too, had told him a story about her experiences with the psychic. The woman had phoned Naya to warn her about dating her colleagues, and not long afterwards, Naya had been stalked by a fellow teacher. It is being revealed to you. You must believe and be strong. A raw chill seeped into his bones. If Pearl was the one who had called him, why had she done it? What was she talking about? He looked at the old Bible. You are responsible. Was he living in a bad dream or what? What the hell was going on? He paged to another drawing. In this one, a Goliath with blazing eyes and massive hands curled like claws loomed over the ever-present black man. And the man whoever he was, appeared to be afraid for his life. Although Kyle had learned patience in his long life, he wondered how much longer he could stand waiting for his father to awaken from his sleep. Diallo had not opened his eyes once. He had not stirred. His breathing was regular. His skin was warm, and his eye movements indicated intense dreaming, all of which were encouraging signs. But he had not awakened. Kyle paced the mansion, roaming from one candlelit room to another. Each day, he grew more restless. He was eager to leave, but he had to wait until his father awakened. It was not safe to move Diallo. He was certain that his father was slowly arising from his sleep, and to disrupt the process might plunge Diallo back into the most profound depths of his slumber. They had to wait. Mamu relaxed in the living room, a chess game arranged on the table in front of him. His agent was characteristically calm, 
but he had every reason to be. Mamu's father was not the one at risk. A faint sound reached Kyle's sensitive ears. It came from the basement. He snapped his fingers, capturing Mamu's attention. The cellar. Mamu got up so abruptly, he knocked over his chair. But he was not nearly as swift as Kyle. Within a human's blink of an eye, Kyle had raced across the corridor and down the basement staircase. The sound reached him again. A low groan. Kyle approached the bed. Diallo's head whipped back and forth across a thick pillow. A moan grumbled from his chapped lips. He is awakening, Kyle shouted. He clutched the bed railing. Mamu watched from the opposite side of the bed. His eyes were bright. Yes, monsieur, it is happening. Diallo screamed. His mouth contorted in a rictus of agony, saliva running from his fangs in thick strands. Veins stood out on his neck like steel cables. His strong hands, clenched in fists, ripped the bed sheets into shreds. Hearing his father cry almost caused Kyle to collapse to the floor. He gripped the railing, desperately, to remain standing. Mamu's eyes were enormous with fear. Diallo's shriek lifted to an octave that made the windows tremble, and then his shriek pitched into a thunderous growl that came from deep in his massive chest. Finally, he fell silent, and his eyes opened. 916-633-1537 Ratchet and Ratchet at gmail.com Ratchet Book Club on Twitter Ratchet Book Club on Facebook uh, You can leave a review on Podchaser and then copy that review and paste it on the Apple Podcast and then copy that review and paste it in the Good Pods uh, Leave five stars for each And you can donate to the show at patreon.com slash single simulcast Um at buymeacoffee.com slash sscast and at Good Pods, the app, uh, where you can go to our tip jar. I just want to say real quick that as a black child, I am well aware of how black families use that light that's over the um, stove as a nightlight. I don't know if any other race does that because I'm not any other race, but I know that my grandma did it, my mama did it, my other granny did it and I do it. And when I do it, I'm like, why are you doing that? And because there's nightlights that you could plug in all over the house and I ain't afraid of the dark. So I turn it off. And then I, 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 I realize that when I have it on though, it's not a comfort, like from the fear of the dark, it's a comfort of what my elders has taught me or has shown me. And it is so strange that the smallest things can become such a big part of your life that it feels strange to be without it. I say all that to say this, the little things that you're doing, the little things that you are going through, which are either good or bad, the little things, the most trivial of things may not mean anything to you. But it has a profound effect on those who see it. And it gets passed down from generation to generation. Both good and bad. Thank y'all for listening. I greatly appreciate it. Y'all be good. I'm going to holler you later. Peace.
intro and outro to Ratchet Book Club is by that kid Garan, and it's called Goodbyes. You can email him at tkgbeats94 at gmail.com for more information on how to lease this beat. This is Single Simulcast. Don't know by now that you slipped.